Hello and welcome to the Lead On Podcast. I'm Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary. And it's my pleasure to talk with you today about issues in leadership that uh, hopefully will make us more capable of leading in God's kingdom and advancing His work around the world. Let me start today with a question. How do you feel when you pour your whole heart into a person or a project and the results just don't measure up to your expectations? The most common feeling is disappointment. Now listen to the question again. How do you feel when you pour your whole heart into a project or a person? I'm not talking about when you've uh, given a haphazard effort or when you've done something that reflected some kind of sinful behavior or when you did something that was a bad decision or was an inadequate effort. I'm talking about when you've done everything you knew to do the right way. You prayed, you worked, you sacrificed, and things just didn't turn out like you hoped. The common response is disappointment. So today, I want to talk with you about some insight from the Bible about this important theme of dealing uh, with disappointment. I remember uh, a few years ago, a youth pastor called me. He said, uh, hey, Dr. Orge, do you have a minute? And he, was so, he sounded so sad on the phone. I thought, sure, what, what can I do to help you? He said, well, here, here's what happened. He said, I, I went to this church, and, and we had about 10 teenagers in our youth group, and, and I worked really hard, and my team worked really hard with me. And, and after about a year or so, we had, we had gotten that group up to about 20 solid attenders, people that were participating with us. And we decided that we were going to have a major effort to reach a, a large number of additional teenagers with this particular event. So we poured everything into it. We, we spent time and money. We prayed. We worked. Uh, we set a goal of 50 teenagers at this event. And we were sure that we were going to achieve that with all that we had done. But yesterday we had the event, and, uh, and only 42 came. And it's just so disappointing. My whole team was down afterwards because we had set a goal of 50, and we had done so much, and yet it, it just didn't quite work out. Well, I just couldn't help myself. I blurted out on the phone, you had 42 teenagers at your event? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, listen, man, you had 10 a year ago. You've never had more than 20 at an event. You just doubled that for this outreach that you did yesterday, and you're disappointed? And he said, well, well yeah, I really am. And that is a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. We pour our whole heart and soul into a project or a person, uh, we give it everything we have, we, we set a goal that we're just sure we can meet, and then we don't quite measure up, we feel disappointed. Well, uh, that illustration's uh, you know, pretty simple, and you think, yeah, but you can recover from that fairly quickly. What about some more profound or more significant disappointments? Well, I'm going to talk about some of those as we go through the podcast today. Let me start by saying that uh, disappointment results from unmet expectations, uh, not from actual results or actual performance. Disappointment results from what I call the expectation gap. It's the gap between what you hoped would happen and what really happens. Disappointment also occurs or results from circumstances outside your control. In other words, when you're the cause, uh, you can attribute what happens to either a bad decision that you made or perhaps a sinful choice that was involved in the process, but I'm not talking about those things today. I'm saying when you've done your best and things don't work out quite like you planned, the circumstances are outside your control. It wasn't anything you could have done anything about. 
So, disappointment results from these two things. One, unmet expectations, the expectation gap between what actually happens and what you hoped would happen. And disappointment results from circumstances outside your control, not from bad decisions you've made or sinful choices in your leadership practice, but instead when you've done your best and things just don't work out like you'd hoped. Now that leads us to think theologically or biblically about this dilemma. And I guess I would come to this conclusion fairly quickly, and that is God is at work in all your circumstances. He's at work in the circumstances that you cannot control. He's also at work in the circumstances of you achieving less than you had dreamed. Now, God is at work in all your circumstances. This means that God either causes your circumstances or he controls your circumstances. Now, different theological backgrounds can debate whether God causes or controls and what the relationship is between God's cause and God's control. But the reality is, uh, whether you believe God causes or controls your circumstances, the reality is he is at work in all your circumstances. Now, he's at work in all your circumstances, including the negative ones. There's a great Old Testament story uh, that illustrates this. You know the story of Joseph and his situation with his brothers, they sold him into slavery, and later he delivered them by his leadership in Egypt. But when he came before them and his identity was disclosed, his brothers said uh, that they feared for their lives. But Joseph said to his brothers, you intended all of this for evil, but God turned it for good. So even in the Old Testament, there's this pattern of God controlling circumstances working through circumstances that we cannot control to bring about good in our lives that we could not have anticipated. He, while that, story, or that principle is illustrated in the Old Testament, it's taught clearly in the New. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, uh, Paul wrote this, And we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This verse says that that God works in all things for good. Now, this does not mean that all things are good or that all circumstances are good. What it does mean is that God has a capacity to work through all circumstances to bring about good in our lives. So then we ask the question, How is God at work in our disappointing circumstances? When we have done everything we knew to do, when we've prayed and worked and struggled and sacrificed, when we've done all of that with pure motives and things don't turn out like we'd hoped, where is God in the midst of the disappointment? Well, over the years, through the disappointments I've experienced, I've learned several ways that God can intersect, intersect life uh, in disappointing circumstances. So let me share some of those with you, both encourage you and maybe instruct you a little bit in how to reflect on your disappointing circumstances and see God at work. The first thing I've learned is that God allows disappointments so that we can share in the sufferings of Jesus. In Philippians 1.29, the Bible says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 through 16, the Bible says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Both Paul and Peter indicate that Christians will from time to time identify with or enter into the sufferings of Jesus. Now, frankly, in American Christianity particularly, uh, this is hard to imagine. We don't suffer much here. But we do have some ways that we identify with what Jesus endured. And I'll just give you a couple of ideas. First, um, you will be disappointed when you do the right thing and suffer for it. A few years ago, uh, a pastor friend of my, uh, um, a friend of mine told about his father who was a pastor. He said that when he was a teenager, his father came home one day and assembled the family around the dining table and said, something happened today. I need to tell you about it as a family and I uh, need to tell you what's going to happen at our church on Sunday because it may be a very difficult day for us. We may lose our, I may lose my job. We may have to move out of this parsonage. We may have to leave our church. Here's what had happened. The pastor was riding uh, in a pickup truck that his deacon chairman was driving. They hit a, a bump in the road, and the glove compartment flopped open, and the, the driver's uh, KKK clan uh, hood fell out of the glove box into the pastor's lap. The pastor held it up and looked at it, realized what it was, and turned to his deacon chairman and said, Is this yours? Uh, the person said, Yes, yes, it is. He said, Well, then you need to understand something that's going to happen this Sunday. I'm going to confront this in our church, and either you're going to repent or one of us is going to be leaving the church because this is unacceptable and I won't stand for it. Well, the person who told me this was telling it from his memory of a teenager experiencing this, and he said, you know, that was the day my dad became a man in my eyes. I I'd never seen him have to stand up so clearly for something that was so right, knowing that he was going to suffer for it, uh, no matter how it turned out. Sometimes you do what's right. You make the right decision. You stand up for the right principle. You uh, hold the line on the right doctrine, and you're going to suffer for it. People are going to criticize you. They're going to attack you. Uh, it may cost you your job, may cost you your position, may cost you your fellowship of your church, but still, you have to do what you know is right. Another way that we can share in the sufferings of Jesus, or at least identify with those sufferings, is investing in people who disappoint us. You know, Jesus did this. He poured part of his heart and soul into Judas and, uh, as one of the twelve, but we all know how that turned out for him. I've been a leader a long time, and over the years I've chosen individuals to be on my team, and I've invested in them, both by giving them opportunity and then trying to teach and train and develop them along the way. There have been a few instances uh, where people that I've uh, endeavored to help and to develop have really turned against me. I'm thinking of one really clear example where a person uh, on my team did something really horribly uh, immoral and then, uh, in a sense, blamed me for it and tried to justify it by making me out to be the person who was the cause of their choices. It was a really difficult time uh, for, for me as I felt like someone that I had really developed a friendship with and a relationship with and I'd cultivated into leadership turned against me. But nevertheless, it happens. And when it does, it's profoundly disappointing. So one of the reasons that God allows us to be disappointed in circumstances that cause suffering or in relationships that cause disappointment is so that we can learn something of what the Lord Jesus went through 
when I think about the small amount of suffering that I've endured and the small amount of difficulty that I've had to experience because of people turning against me, um, I realize that what Jesus experienced was so many times more difficult than I have, but nevertheless, it helps me to identify with him and to have a greater appreciation for what he accomplished on my behalf. Uh, Another reason that God allows disappointments in our lives is to reveal misplaced affections or what you might call misplaced priorities. In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This passage says that we're to set our affections or our uh, our emotional attachments. Uh, We're to set our hearts, the Bible says, on things above, meaning that we're to fix them on Jesus Christ and on what he means in our lives. Now, quite frankly, uh, people tend to look uh, to other other sources or other means for their emotional satisfaction. Uh, It's a broad and general statement, but women tend to look to relationships for emotional fulfillment, and men tend to look to achievements or accomplishments. Now, those are broad generalizations. Men can also look to relationships. Women can also look to accomplishments. But Generally speaking, these are the two primary areas, and, and in many cases, these are the two primary ways that the different genders seek out emotional fulfillment. Jesus says he wants to be the object of our affection, the person who gives us a sense of satisfaction, a sense of achievement, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of emotional fulfillment. I saw this illustrated very powerfully uh, in my work with professional baseball players. A number of years ago, I I met a player who was in the minor leagues and worked with him uh, while I was uh, at spring training and working with the minor league players in in their uh, training time. Uh, I I was very impressed with his devotion to Jesus. He was a strong Christian, an, an open Christian, meaning that he shared his faith. He reached out to other players. He participated in Bible study. Uh, In many ways, you would have looked at him and thought he was the model uh, professional athlete in terms of his Christian faith. Uh, I enjoyed uh, several years of relationship with him as he progressed through the minor leagues, but frankly, his progress was slow. By the time he got to year eight, playing in the minor leagues, he was uh, thinking that he might uh, never make that dream of getting to the big leagues, and uh, he didn't get there that, that, that season either. Finally, during that year, he went into the offseason and went home. And, uh, you know, as, as players tend to do in the offseason, they have more time. So he was more focused on his Bible study and prayer and more focused on his discipleship processes and his spiritual growth. And during that offseason, he had what he later described to me as a profound spiritual experience. Um, through a process of prayer and Bible study and, and mentoring, he He really had to face the reality that his ultimate fulfillment, his emotional fulfillment, what gave him a sense of identity and and achievement and accomplishment as a man was making the big leagues, playing in the major leagues. And he had to come face to face with the reality of what an idol that had become in his life. And in fact, he had to repent of that and turn away from it. And so during that offseason, he went through a process where he finally was able to pray a prayer something like this, God... If I never make it to the big leagues, I know that you love me, you care for me, you've made me the man I am, you've given me purpose, you've given me significance, and Lord, no achievement can ever give me what you've already given me in a relationship through Jesus Christ, and so thank you for that. Well, that next season, 
about the middle of June, he was called up for the first time to the big leagues. I saw him when he got to the Giants clubhouse, congratulated him on his achievement, and asked him how it finally felt to have reached this life goal. I was surprised at how subdued he was. He said, you know, it really means a lot. I'm so glad that I was able to get here, and I'm thankful to my family and my wife and my coaches and everybody who helped me. But then he said, but Jeff, I need to tell you a story, the rest of the story. And then he told me the story that I've just told you, and that is the story of how God had helped him to understand that he had misplaced his affections. He had set his heart on the wrong thing. And because of that, God allowed him the profound and continued disappointment of not making it to the big leagues until he got this issue resolved. And then, and then as a beautiful demonstration of God's grace, he was able to achieve that life goal. So sometimes God allows disappointments so we can, to reveal our misplaced affections and to redirect um, our hearts, if you will, toward him. Another reason that God allows disappointment is so that we can learn to comfort others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, the Bible says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow, uh, flow into, over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. This passage says that when we are disappointed, when life doesn't work out like we'd hoped, when our expectations aren't met, that God comes to us and provides comfort. And when we experience that comfort and learn what it means to trust him through those disappointments, we're then equipped to extend his comfort to others. Our families had a profound experience with this. Between the birth of our first child and our second child, my wife experienced two miscarriages. Now, these were traumatic experiences for my wife. She has always dreamed of being a wife and mother and of having multiple children, and um, we're grateful to God that ultimately that's how it turned out. But when it was actually happening, we didn't know that's how it would really turn out. And so these miscarriages were... Uh, emotionally uh, traumatic, uh, they were spiritually draining, uh, they were physically difficult. Uh, it was a really dark time for my wife, and because of that, it was also a difficult time for me. We went through those two miscarriages and received comfort from others and comfort from God, and through the process of that, deepened our confidence in God, our relationship with Him, and our understanding of His care and concern for us. Well, um, a few years after that happened, while I was still serving as a pastor, uh, we met a young couple that uh, were not Christians. We were able to share the gospel with them and lead them to faith in Christ and baptize them. In the process of learning, of learning uh, getting acquainted with them, we learned that they had had a series of miscarriages that had gone on for several years and they had not ever yet been able to have a child. This was a devastating and traumatic experience for them. Uh, it was part of what drove them, frankly, uh, to, to seek God and to come into relationship with him. But even after they were Christians, uh, the pattern of miscarriages continued. We were all praying that at some point they would be able to have a, a child. And then finally, 
and, and, and as a part of that, uh, when those miscarriages continued, uh, we even went so far as to have a, a memorial service, uh, just my wife and I and this, this other couple. I remember sitting around in a circle with them and me reading scripture and talking with them about God and about life and about how he originates and cares for and superintends life and, um, and just working through the process of their grief of the lost children they'd not been able to have and then asking God uh, for the future. And then finally, uh, there came a day when she was pregnant and the pregnancy lasted and, and, and it came time for childbirth. Well, I was home uh, when my phone rang and the fellow said, uh, Pastor, uh, the baby's coming and it's not good. We need you here now. So I got in the car and raced to the hospital, uh, ran upstairs to the labor and delivery area. This was a smaller community. I was well known as a pastor. They, they knew who I was. And so immediately they, they, they went into the delivery room, got the father. He came out. He poured out his heart. His wife was in crisis. Uh, uh, the, the, the delivery was extremely difficult, uh, and he said, you've got to pray, you've got to pray now. I said, well, let's pray, and he, and he said, no, not, not here, and he grabs my hand, and he pulls me into the delivery room, and so his wife is there. She's laboring. I remember there just being uh, blood everywhere. Uh, the physician, who, who was also a friend of mine, was working feverishly uh, with the delivery, nurses on both sides, and I remember him saying, uh, his wife reaching out and taking my hand and, and him saying, I just pray, just pray, and I stood there and was praying for this whole scenario in front of me, and uh, a few moments later, uh, the baby was born, and the baby was healthy, and the mom was saved, and, and, and uh, after a short time of recovery, uh, things were really good in this family's life. Well, uh, a year or so after that, I left that church and went to Oregon to plant the church. But every year after that, on that child's birthday, uh, that couple would send me a, a letter with that child's picture in it, and then later their school pictures. And I got a letter like that every year until that child graduated from high school. And every year they wrote similar, similarly to us and said, uh, you were there for us when we were hurting so badly when we weren't able to have a child. And then you were there for us when, the child, when this child was born. So thank you for all you've invested in us. And here's, what the, here's what's going on with our son. They would tell me about his life and how it was developing. I tell that whole story to simply say, my wife and I knew how to connect with this, this couple. We knew how to connect with them because of what we had experienced in our own miscarriages. We knew how to have a small service with them and talk with them about what we had lived through and what God had taught us and what his word said about life and about death. We also uh, knew how to uh, care for them in the midst of their crisis of birth and then to rejoice with them afterwards because we also had then had subsequent children after our miscarriages and we knew the, the joy that comes when you finally do have the child. So I'm simply saying that God allowed us to go through some things so that we could learn his comfort and then we would know how to comfort others. That's a good reason that God allows disappointment and a helpful reason for us in ministry leadership. Well, here's another reason. God allows disappointments to guide us to better options. One of my favorite passages of Scripture really reads like travelogue in the book of Acts. In fact, it's one of those passages that some people might think of as sort of a throwaway passage. I know there's no throwaway Scripture. I don't mean that. But it's just one of those verses you read over and just try to get past so you can get to the next good story. But here's what it says. Paul in Acts 16, starting in verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, 
but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. This passage is all about travel log, but when you look on a map, you'll find that this passage actually took several months to go by. This was a large geographical area that Paul was traveling about, uh, probably on foot, and so we know this was an an, or, an arduous ordeal, if you will, of trying to find where God wanted him. He went to one place. He went to another place. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go in. The Spirit of Jesus prohibited him. He wandered and wandered and wandered until he finally got to Troas and then uh, had a vision that w- in which God took him forward into the next ministry assignment. When I read that story and started really reflecting on it uh, in relationship to the amount of distance covered, it helped me to understand that Paul experienced what I often experience, and that is I feel like I'm going from door to door trying to find where God wants me to go. I'm trying to figure out um, what, what my options are and which option he wants me to select and how he wants me to go forward. Now, and, I'll, and I'll tell you this, I've observed this in a couple of ways. Uh, the first one I've observed uh, in the lives of many other people, especially seminary students I work with, is uh, about personal relationships. People, uh, you know, find someone they think they might want to be with for the rest of their lives and then it doesn't work out, and those relationship breakups are very disappointing. But I've been at this long enough and observed enough of these to know that quite often a person will have a profound disappointment that then a few months later or maybe a few years later will open them to a better person that God had for them all along. And the, and the, and the final relationship that they select is so much better than the previous one which they thought was so meaningful to them. I had that experience as a college student, and I expect a lot of other people would be able to say they had a similar experience. Sometimes God closes doors of relationship, and it's very disappointing when it happens so that he might later open other doors of opportunity that are much better. Now, in leadership, the most common application of this for me has been trying to hire people to work here at the seminary, and it just doesn't work out. Uh, For whatever reason, uh, sometimes it's the wrong timing, sometimes it's the wrong position, sometimes the finances don't line up, uh, sometimes the timing just isn't right. There's all kinds of reasons why people uh, don't come or can't come or it's not the right time to come. And over the years that I've been here, many times I've been disappointed where I just walked away and said, God, really? I mean, couldn't we have gotten that person here? And then a few months later, I realize what a mistake it would have been to have gotten that person. Or a few months later, someone comes along who's more qualified, better credentialed, more capable, and I'm able to get even a better person than I thought of in the first place. So God has allowed disappointment in my life, both in relationships and in hiring practices, to get me to better options. So sometimes when things don't work out quite like you hoped, and you're not able to get what you really thought was best, God is simply delaying you until he can bring about the better option that he has in mind for you. Well, finally, God allows disappointments to remind us of heaven. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. One of the reasons that life is disappointing is because it should remind us of heaven. I have a good friend whose sister had a long and long debilitating illness. 
Uh, she deteriorated slowly and then eventually was bedridden and then uh, mostly paralyzed and then finally uh, lost her life to her illness. He would go to visit her, my friend, would go to visit his sister from time to time and would report back to me those experiences, both to get himself personally encouraged in the process and also to give me some reflection on what he was learning from his sister's illness and how she progressed through it. Especially near the end, the thing that was so striking was her constant discussion of and hope for heaven. Uh, She talked often about heaven. She wanted passages of scripture about heaven read to her. She listened to music about heaven. And when people would come around her and seem depressed or saddened by her situation, she would say, listen, what I'm going through is very difficult, and it's a big disappointment to all of us, but it it should really remind us that this is the way life is. Life's not basically going to turn out well. It's going to lead to death. But Jesus Christ has made heaven possible. And so she said, I've learned through what I've experienced here to have less attachment to this life and a greater anticipation for the next. I can't wait for heaven. Every time I reflect on that situation, uh, I'm reminded of the fact that, that uh, life is disappointing. It's full of sin and sickness and evil and difficulty. And frankly, a lot of it just feels like a big letdown. Now, listen, I know there's a lot of good days, too, and I'm not trying to be super negative here at the end of the podcast, but let's just face the hard reality. Life's hard, and it can be very disappointing. And one of the reasons for that is to continually remind us not to get too attached to here and to keep our focus on heaven. I've said before, life is short, but heaven is long, and we need to live like that with a focus on the eternal reality that's going to be ours someday in Jesus Christ and recognize that what we're experiencing now is a a short-term difficulty, a short-term challenge, a short-term pain for what's going to lead us into a long-term eternity with Jesus Christ. Well, disappointment. Disappointment comes from unmet expectations and from circumstances outside your control. When you've done everything you could, and your situation or your relationship just doesn't turn out like you'd hoped, you're going to feel disappointed. But God is at work in your circumstances, all of them, including your disappointing circumstances. So then you ask yourself this question, what can I learn from the disappointment I'm experiencing, and how can I find God in the midst of it? I've given you five suggestions today. Remember that God allows disappointment to help you understand the sufferings of Jesus, to help you change your misplaced affections and fix your heart on him, to help you learn to comfort others, to guide you to better options, and to continually remind you of heaven. Now that's just five suggestions out of my life and my experience. Perhaps you've got five more you could add. I hope so, because God is at work in all our circumstances, even in our disappointments. Well, thanks for listening today. It's good to have the responsibility of leadership, and so my final word to you is, as always, lead on.